You're listening to Arabiyat with Linda and Sreya. I'm Linda. And I'm Sreya. So welcome back to another episode of Arabiyat. I know we've had some gaps in between our episodes. We're going through transition right now. But today in studio, finally, we have Sreya back with us, and we're very excited to have her here. And we have a very interesting episode for you today. So I'm going to start off with a quote from the book of the author we're interviewing. To be a Muslim American today often means to exist in an absurd space between exotic and dangerous, victim and villain, simply because of the assumptions people carry about you. Those are the words of Professor Mustafa Bayoumi, author of This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. The last few decades have shaped Arab and Muslim lives in very dramatic and complex ways. And the complexities of life as an Arab and Muslim is part of what prompted us to create this podcast to begin with. Today, Mustafa Bayoumi, professor of English at Brooklyn College, joins us from New York to hopefully bring some clarity on what sometimes feels like very overwhelming issues. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that quote I read in the beginning? Well, I think that the um, the ways in which Arabs and Muslims both, you know, which are two separate yet overlapping categories, and yet still I feel like, you know, most of the United States population still often confuses the two. And even that confusion itself is part of the problem that we're talking about. It's that there's this great level of ignorance, a great level of fear, a great level of suspicion that attaches to anything that's Arab or and or Muslim um, in the in this country today. And it really relegates every every kind of um, sentiment that gets projected onto Arabs and Muslims in really simplistic fashion. And so people are either considered to be, you know, assumed to be dangerous until they prove they're not, or assumed to be exotic and not part of the fabric of this country until they can prove that they are. Or, you know, these kinds of litmus tests, uh, uh, I think, are, are kind of, th- these are daily realities for people in, the, in both Muslim American and Arab American communities. You know, as an Arab American who grew up in America, and um, I'm a Christian Arab American, so I was always assumed to be Muslim. Do you think that our communities are very aware of the kind of overwhelming complexity of their identity in this country? You know, I I, uh, I also grew up as an Arab um, in North America. I grew up in Canada uh, myself, and then I moved to the United States to go to graduate school, and I've stayed here in the United States. So I think I have a pretty good sense of what being an Arab American and being an Arab Canadian is all about. And but you know, I'm also um, on the older side of the generational divide, I guess. So I also know what life was like before, say, 9/11 and after. And I think that there's actually, you know, there's something that's that is quite different um, in the in the pre 9/11 period and the post 9/11 period, even just in the way that that uh, that people grow up and people uh, are are interested in their own identities and how they form their identities and those kinds of questions. And I think that you know, prior to uh, 2001, a lot of a lot of our identities were primarily shaped, it seems to me, by a lot of events that were happening overseas. And there's a very good reason for that, because of course, the, you know, things that are happening in the Arab world are so are really riveting and complex, and they're and they're often tragic, and they're very 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 important. Um, but it it meant that our our levels of consciousness and engagement with who we are were often about living here, but projecting ourselves overseas. 
And I think that that still happens today. Obviously, there's still a lot of involvement with what's happening overseas in the, in the Arab world. But at the same time, there are so many issues that are confronting us here in the United States, too, that our levels of identity formation and levels of engagement with our society here have also become very profound. And so in a lot of ways, I think the, our notion of who we are has become a lot more complex um, in the last 15 years or so. And, and I, I think I welcome that. I think it's a good thing. I think that we should be thinking about what's the relationship between our uh, our overseas you know, identities and our domestic identities, just in the same way that we have to think about what's the relationship between American foreign policy and American domestic policy, too. So we actually occupy a very, very important space, even just for the American imagination of people who can actually um, um, connect those two sides of, of, the, uh, of the equation. So what space do we occupy in the American imagination and, and psyche? I travel, I'm fortunate enough that, you know, I've, I've been able to travel around the, con- the whole country to talk uh, about my books. And, um, and I, I speak to general audiences all the time. And I can tell you that I think that most general audiences still do not know the difference between Arab and Muslim. And, and they just equate the two. And um, so I used to kind of resent that. And now I just embrace it. And I feel like that's now something that I just have to, that's an educational challenge that I'm engaged in now. So it's a strange thing to be vilified and you know to occupy this space of really the the complete other in the American imagination when the American imagine sort of this general American imagination as it were has really just no idea really about who you are and just you know it's a substitution it's this weird kind of substitution it doesn't really matter the details of Arab life or Muslim life you can just substitute one thing for the other because it's just the other I think it's really a profoundly um, uh, disturbing place actually to be in. I think it's really interesting to look at that perspective because in your book, you actually go a bit into detail about the history of Islam in the black community and how actually Arabs weren't the first Muslims here. It was black people. Could you talk a little bit more about that and sort of the significance of bringing that up? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that is so important, and I I try to reiterate that every time that I have the opportunity as well, because it's also part of this American imagination post nine 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 eleven as well. I mean, I think if you had asked sort of an average American prior to two thousand and one to say name a, an, a famous American Muslim, they would have said Malcolm X or Muhammad Ali probably. You know, and then you say now to an American, you know, so name a Muslim, and they'll think of somebody who's uh, brown-skinned and not African-American. They'll think of somebody like Osama bin Laden rather than, you know, the, the, the sort of black national tradition, nationalist tradition. of, uh, And, and that's, that shift is actually really, it's also important. It's like, uh, because it denies, for one thing, it also denies that other, that other past, that other history. And African-American Islam has a deep rich and incredible history in this culture in this country and it's a fact it's a history that that predates a lot of the you know uh contemporary migration to this country it, pre- it predates even the people coming to this country of the likes of donald trump i mean african-american muslims and islam has been in the united states since before the united states was the united states it came during the colonial era during the days of atlantic slavery there were sizable numbers of africans who were enslaved who came to this country who were themselves muslim uh, and they retained their faith and they had they have incredible stories of survival that that we should be paying a lot of attention to not just because they're part of muslim american history but because in fact they're part of american history uh and you know the ways in which the current climate operates uh it it I think it occludes that history, and that's really to the detriment of of all of us. 
I certainly agree with that point. And I think there's this sense of if we remember that there the strength of the solidarity between the black community, be it Muslim or not, and and the general Muslim community and Arabs uh, would definitely get stronger. And I think there's this fear of, of these two communities becoming strong allies. And, you know, there's there's there seems to be a pushback in the United States from what I've read uh, from different people in like mosques that have felt this sense of uh, anti-black sentiment from the Arab Muslim mosques, not just Arab Muslim, but like, you know, brown, like South Asian Muslim mosques. How could we get over that? How could we embrace the black Muslim community and sort of stop regarding it as like they're black Muslims and then the rest of us are just Muslims? Um, yeah, I think that that's a really very important question. And I think that there has to be a lot more engagement even on the daily level with the general Muslim community itself. Now, the Muslim community in the United States, you know, is in fact the most pluralistic and diverse religious community, organized religious community in the country. It comes from at least 69 different countries of origin. And it has all kinds of different moments of arrival. And, uh, you know, from from somebody who came here yesterday as a refugee to somebody who, who uh, to the African-American tradition which predates the United States itself. So, you know, there's a whole lot of diversity within the Muslim community, and that also includes a lot of class diversity. So sometimes the cleavages that you're actually describing, I feel, are often also class cleavages. And so I think the Muslim American community also has to confront its different kinds of class privileges. But there are, there are definitely progressive wings within the Muslim American community that understand that issue that you're talking about right now. And people are, in fact, I think the fact that, that you're talking about these questions and asking me about them is an indication of that part of the conversation that is happening in parts of the, uh, the, the Muslim communities around the country. And I think we need to amplify those and to make sure that we understand that the search for justice uh, within the country is also a search for justice within our own communities. In your book, you talk about the connection between Japanese internment in the 1940s and today's war on terror. How do you make this connection between Japanese internment and, and today's war on terror? Um, I think it's interesting because it's actually come up. It's not even me who's making the connection. It's come up many times, actually, if you sort of track track it. I haven't, I haven't formally tracked this, but you can, and just anecdotally, I can think of several moments in the past 15 years when people have raised the comparison. And also people who are deeply invested in in that history, making that comparison too. So, I mean, your show is based out on the West Coast and, and the, a lot of Japanese-American organizations have actually been at the forefront of uh, really advocating for Muslim-American rights uh, over these past 15 years because I think that they see precisely some, some dangerous parallels happening. I mean, you can see that all the way back to 2002 when the government, the U.S. government under George W. Bush, the federal government, then began a program called NSEERS or commonly known as Special Registration where they demanded that the, uh, the people who are coming into this country as non-immigrant uh, visitors uh, if they were coming from 25 predominantly Muslim countries and they were male in between the ages of 16 and 70, they would have to register their whereabouts uh, in the country. So in fact, we actually had a Muslim kind of registry before we had this presidential cycle of election now when we have people like Donald Trump talking about whether there should be a Muslim registry in this country and, and not. But in fact, we had that before. And I remember in 2002, it caused all kinds of mayhem. It was a really poorly executed program, and, and especially in the beginning, and people were being detained and, and put into deportation proceedings, and it just really felt like a really care, uh, careless and, and dangerous moment in, in this history. 
And people, uh, the legal community in the West Coast was, was making that comparison, saying this is like the precursor to Japanese internment. It felt like that, like the government was also just charting where people of certain ethnicities lived in a certain kind of way for, for who knows for what other kinds of reasons um, to come. And in fact, now we see many years later, we see positive invocations of Japanese internment coming from not just the likes of Donald Trump and, and others uh, who, you know, at one point I think Trump said that he was, he was fond of some of FDR's policies with a sort of nink, wink and a nod to, uh, to Japanese internment. And you had a mayor in Roanoke, Virginia, who positively invoked Japanese internment explicitly just a couple of months ago in his rejection of bringing Syrian refugees to his, uh, to his location, to his municipality. Uh, this is outrageous. I mean, there was a time not too long ago when we recognized that Japanese internment was a great stain, a great injury to the reputation of this country and to Japanese Americans who were themselves interned. And now we're starting to think about it, to rethink it, and sometimes even invoke it positively when it comes to Muslim Americans. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, in fact, we should have uh, mobilization around from all different quarters of the uh, of the progressive community in this country, at the very least. And and I think it's good to see that there was a certain, you know, there was quite a bit of outrage when those kinds of things were being uh, put in the air. But it it is an and it, it really is an indication of the political environment that we're now in that that these kinds of invocations can be made so freely. One of the other things that happened in the last two decades was police surveillance of uh, Muslim communities has grown. And I think you may have mentioned the NYPD surveillance program, which began in 2002. Then the police had to have information that a crime was committed or being planned. But in 2003, and I guess until today, it was changed so that evidence was no longer necessary. Only the possibility of criminal activity could prompt you to be surveilled. Is that still true? And, and how is that being justified? Yep. <laughs> That's the world in which we live right now. That Those are called the Hanshu guidelines. And those were put in place because there had been the same kind of blanket and covert and warrantless surveillance of activists back in the 70s in the United States and in New York City in particular. And so then there was a bunch of them who took the city to court and they said, you know, this is unconstitutional and we have to have a way of like you know, engaging in our, our free speech rights, our rights to private rights to protest, our, our, our right to privacy, our Fourth Amendment rights to privacy, all of these things that are really contravened by, by that kind of warrantless surveillance. And so the police department then ended, in, entered into what's a, called a consent agreement with uh, the lead plaintiff in that case, whose name was Barbara Hanshu. And so that became what, known, what, what was known as the Hanshu Guidelines, which are basically commonsensical, which say that, you know, and, and constitutional, which say essentially that the police can only begin an investigation when they have sufficient reason to believe that there's a probable cause of, an, of you know, a law being broken. And so then, but after 2000, the attacks of 2001, then it was, you know, as they say, a whole new world. And so um, they, uh, the police department lessened the standards for Hanshu. And so basically just a mere suspicion became possible um, uh, for ways of beginning an investigation. And that really opened the door to the kind of warrantless surveillance that, that uh, Muslim American and Arab American communities in New York City have known has been existing for the last 15 years, but was really confirmed by the uh, Associated Press reports that came out in 2011, um, because somebody within the police department started leaking documents to the reporters, um, showing them exactly the level of the surveillance that was going on in the community. And it was, it was quite it was astounding. It was all over the place. I feel like I hear a lot about this happening in New York. And I think that's kind of 
to do with the proximity of these communities to, you know, 9-11 or centers of power. I'm not sure how widespread it is in the West Coast. Is this all over the U.S. or in certain locations? Um, Whether there's that same level of intervention going on in all of the different municipalities, I really really can't say. I don't know if the San Francisco Police Department is engaged in that kind of work as the New York City Police Department is. I don't know. From the things that I've read, the New York City Police Department tends to think of itself as you know, it's so big and it's so massive and it's so incredibly professional. Like they have bureaus uh, overseas. The New York City Police Department has a bureau in Tel Aviv. Like why the New York City Police Department has a bureau in Tel Aviv? Surprising to me. Like, you know, it's not it's not your everyday average police department, in other words. And so I think we should be looking not just at the municipal police departments, though, but we should also be looking at what the what the FBI is doing as well. And I think if you look at what the FBI is doing, then you see their kinds of activity across the country. So I think there's been a general rise of anti-Muslim sentiment, uh, especially, you know, with Donald Trump, you know, touting that rhetoric and ISIS sort of feeding into that frenzy, uh, that there's been a bit of a pushback. Like I live in Oakland and I've been seeing more and more lately uh, posters on different businesses that say, you know, we're we support our Muslim neighbors. Um, Also, the refugee crisis, you know, refugees are welcome here. So there is a little bit of a pushback. However, you know, I do live in Oakland. This is the Bay area. And so, you know, we have a history here of being sort of radical and conscious and accepting of different communities. But I wonder, you know, how do we reach the communities within uh, the U.S. that don't have Muslims in their neighborhood? And the only image of Muslims they do see is from the news, um, you know, from what they hear, from the sort this sort of like legend of Muslim as the greatest terror America has ever faced. The, your first chapter in the book is called Letter to G-Man. And you sort of write this letter that is really simple to grasp, but has a lot of deep history. You know, I, I was just wondering, first of all, who is G-Man? And secondly, how can we change this type of thinking when we don't have access to to you know mass media in a way you know how can we reach these communities like what are the things that we are able to do as a muslim community in the us sure like um well first of all i guess i'm showing my age again because uh, people of a certain age will tell you that a g man is uh, the g stands for government and g man was a way of referring to somebody who was in, in the fbi that's an fbi agent oh okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> go on <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I think your question is precisely spot on. I mean, I think that there's a lot of really important goodwill from many corners of this country that we should be combining those forces because there is a real reason, essentially the reason for the survival of the values that this country is is supposed to stand for, that we should be working towards making a movement out of those. But at the same time, it's also true that, you know, I I saw polling data from, uh, I think, maybe two weeks ago that said it was more than 51% of the American public now supported the idea of of the Muslim ban that Donald Trump has now proposed. And I'm not talking about Republican voters. This poll was of all Americans. So that includes Democratic voters as well. That's frightening, actually. That's really, really shocking. And it just illustrates the levels by which the rhetoric can, however extreme it sounds, has the, also the ability to shift what's respectable discourse towards itself. And that, that is really dangerous. 
what is really necessary is precisely what you were saying. It's an engagement with not just mass media, but I think it's an engagement with all levels of media right now and getting messages across. If you think, take Muslim Americans, for example, Muslim Americans are maybe 1% to 2% of the population in this country. It's a really small number, actually. And other polls will tell you that something like 62% of Americans in this country have never even met a Muslim before. So the idea of Muslims is really abstract and really dictated a lot by things that they see in the media, not by personal contact, or, because a lot of those same polls will tell you that if you actually have personal contact with, with Muslims, then your ho- levels of hostility go way down, which is kind of a no-brainer because you know Muslim are, Muslims are people too, and so you can start to relate to them as people rather than just as this, this abstract threat. So, but, but that's too much of a, a responsibility to put on Muslims generally, that now Muslims just have to go out and meet everybody in the country, and then everything will be fine, because that's obviously not going to work either. Um, but in fact, we do have all kinds of opportunities available to us now that we, we didn't have a, a generation ago, in term, especially in terms of new media and new opportunities to sort of reach out and, 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 and articulate uh, messages in, in ways that the gatekeepers are no longer there in the same way. We have, you know, so people should be starting to blog. People should be starting to, uh, to uh, write for all kinds of different venues, not just uh, searching to get onto CNN or, or, um, or you know, CBS News or or some such things. I mean, I think, I think it's really, really, really important also within Muslim American and Arab American communities, having come out of both of those, or at least North American, I think it's really, really, really important also that as the communities understand that there is value and importance in, um, in being invested in humanities education, not just solely in engineering educations or business educations or medical professions or all the professional uh, realms, that, that we need more Muslim filmmakers, we need more Arab writers, Arab American writers, we need, we need, we need musicians, we need, we need to be really invested in sort of the cultural conversation in this country. And I think that there's so much talent that I see just among people, young people that I know, that I, I'm waiting for, for this explosion of talent that's going to really just uh, hit the airwaves and begin to shape the message in a more profound way. I think the image of the Muslim is so tailored here that, you know, a woman has to be veiled to be recognized as a as a Muslim. And then there's also fear. So if you are if you are someone who's Muslim and you are in a space where maybe you're um, you know, there aren't other Muslims in the community and you stand out and, you know, maybe you're trying to raise awareness. There's also the fear of getting attacked or getting killed. You know, as we know what happened in North Carolina, the three uh, young people that got killed, you know, in their apartment. So, you know, and, and they're very active in the Muslim community. And so, you know, how do we get over that fear? Because it's a lot of women are considering taking off the hijab. Uh, a lot of people are considering just like sort of hiding the religion or their practice because, you know, a lot of us can pass for white if, you know, if need be. Or uh, Latino or something. Or Latino. <laughs> yeah, we can pass for and something else if we just sort of take off the garb of Islam and pretend we're something else for a while. You know, how, how can we resist that? How can we overcome that and not give in to that fear even though it makes sense, you know, I, it's totally understandable too, especially if you're in, in parts of the country where, uh, you know, the majority is sort of violently against Muslims. Yeah. Well, I don't think the majority is violently against Muslims. Uh, I think that there is definitely uh, levels, you know, elevated levels of hostility. They do tend to be, 
I think, often paper tigers. So sometimes when I, when I encounter in my lecturing, sometimes I'll encounter people who are very vehemently and vocally anti-Muslim, and then you engage them a little bit, and they'll tend to, they often tend to fold. So I think engagement is really important, for one thing. But I think, I think your question also points to a couple of other really important things, too. Which, and one of, them, one of which is that, you know, there are and should be, and it should also be recognized, there are so many ways of being Muslim. And so it's not really about whether you wear hijab or not. That's, that's one way of being Muslim is wearing a hijab for somebody. Where, for another person, wearing hijab is not, is, is, is not wearing hijab is just as Muslim. I think that we ourselves as Muslims, really it's up to us as well to complicate the ways of being Muslim in this country. There are so many ways. And I think that um, you can get into that without having necessarily to have the big theological discussions as well. I mean, it's even within Islam itself, it's so easy to recognize that there are so many different affectations of how to be Muslim that I think it's so important that those kinds of conversations come out to the rest of the country too so that people will have an understanding of that. Muslim can mean many, many, many different things. And so it's not just a, a, you get slaughtered into whether you're a good Muslim or a bad Muslim. That's the binary logic that we really have to reject. In terms of, uh, so that's why also I think in the cultural sphere too, it's really it's really important that we don't harp on the positive message thing either. I think it's really um, uh, fundamental that if you really want to be a cultural producer in this country, that you you search for authentic kind of stories. You search for stories that are really about people's lived experiences, not just stories that present positive portrayals. Uh, people don't want to hear those. Those are just those are boring. Those are afternoon specials. So I think we really have to get beyond that sort of logic as well, because that's really uh, fundamentally also just ends up playing into the good Muslim, bad Muslim logic. Yeah, I think that um, there's two things I want to comment about that, actually. Like, as a person who grew up as an Arab Christian in this country, my lived story constantly, like, totally violated the perceptions that anyone has ever had about Arabs. I mean, I meet them, and first of all, they don't even know. They think I'm Latina or something. And then... I'll be, and then you talk to them, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm Roman Catholic, actually. I mean, there's a small percentage of Arabs that are Christians. So those stories and just me living my life and just being my authentic self and, and inviting them to my family events and all that, it shows, you know, the complexity. And I've seen so many people just change their views and become very curious about, oh, well, what, what is an Arab? Like, I never really thought about it. Now, I wanted to ask you another question regarding um, kind of the culture makers, I guess. It's, you wrote about this in your book. So... 30 years ago, um, the late Edward Said published the groundbreaking work Orientalism. And for those who are not really clear on what Orientalism is, it's in a nutshell, it's a type of discourse that you describe in your book, which possesses the, quote, will or intention to understand what is non-European and in some cases to control and manipulate what is manifestly different. It's a fairly well-known concept, but you talk further about something called you called neo-Orientalism, um, in which commentators who self-describe themselves as Muslims or ex-Muslims claim to be providing Westerners and a, quote, insider's message. And I see that you find that problematic. Can you talk more about these kind of figures that we see, in our, and especially the mainstream media? So, uh, yeah, Orientalism uh, was an incredibly important book for me to read. And uh, in fact, it led me to graduate school. And I was fortunate also enough to have studied with Edward Said, um, um, who, who passed away in 2003, unfortunately. And in Orientalism, he really talks about the ways that the, the, that the, the West views the East historically. And he says that it's not just about this construction of these stereotypes that the West has of the East, but it was also the ways in which the views of the West on the East 
enabled colonialism also to happen because they produced certain ideas that that was the that was the motor for colonialism that you know we have to bring civilization to these savages as an ex- as a very simple example and so his side's interest was really in the ways in which um, you know, material interests are really connect closely connected to the production of ideas and the production of knowledge. And so how knowledge and power themselves intertwine is a fundamental question that he's examining on multiple levels. So, uh, so you know, Orientalism has existed in, uh, uh, as a, as a, even as a formal field of study for, for a very long time. In Europe, it's very common that one is even called an Orientalist, somebody who studies the Orient. And by the Orient in Europe, they generally mean the Muslim Middle East, they don't actually mean the Far East, um, uh, which is what the American uh, uh, trajectory usually thinks of when you hear Orient. But in Europe, it's different. Orient it generally means um, the Middle East, which, of course, we should also just say, by the way, Middle East and Far East and all these terms, Near East, they're so colonial already in their orientation. Um, middle to whom? Far for whom? Etc. Etc. But anyway... What's really interesting to me is that, you know, in this new era that we're living, this very contemporary era that we're living, now you get a whole bunch of people who, who themselves have come from that part of the world or have some kind of connection to that part of the world, like a familial connection from that part of the world. And now they're the ones who are going to tell you, the, the West, what Islam really is, what Mus- who Muslims really are, what they really believe, as if they can give you an insider's message, which could be fine on one level because maybe they'll have more, a more complicated understanding about how the world works. But that message that tends to come from people like Hirshi Ali, for example, or Irshad Manji in Canada, uh, the message that comes from these kinds of commentators tends to be really, really Orientalist. They tend to follow the same kind of script that the 19th century Orientalists followed. And primarily, that script is one that ascribes every kind of behavior that somebody who's Muslim does to Islam. Islam is always at bottom the reason for for action from Muslims. It's like as if Muslims are just pre-programmed robots, and the and the Quran is the instruction manual, which is, of course is ridiculous. In any other part of the world, or even domestically, when we're thinking about complex political questions, we'll consider things like sociology. We'll consider things like economics. We'll consider mitigating factors. We'll talk about history. We'll talk about so many different elements to how societies themselves work. And yet when we talk about the Muslim world, suddenly all of that just evaporates and we talk about Islam as if Islam is the reason for everything. I just find that to be a deeply, deeply problematic and deeply, deeply Orientalist position. And nowadays, when you get it being said and reiterated by people who themselves come from these backgrounds, I just find that even more problematic. In in the book, you mention uh, how politics really informs race because we sort of uh, grow up thinking that, you know, these racial categories, they were defined early on and it's mostly just skin color. Right. But, you know, when you look at Muslims, it's a lot more complicated than just that, because we are not a one race. Obviously, it's a religion and making religion a race is a complicated thing. And you say, you know, the, the U.S. teetered between that and, and definitely it was a reflection of the politics. So where do you think we stand today? Is there a feeling of division? Like you either have to identify as Arab or Muslim and being Arab Muslim, are you uh, isolating Arab Christians, Arab Druze, Arab Jews, you know, other Arabs, or aligning with just Arab Muslims? Are you isolating the rest of the Muslim community? You know, how do you balance those two you know, do you think we're we're still looked at as a race today? Uh, well, I think identity is should never be a zero sum game that you, you can only be one kind of identity because everybody is a whole bunch of different identities. Everybody, 
you know. Um, so uh, that's just the nature of living in a society. People are multiple things, and so they will have different kinds of identities at different times, uh, even of the day. You know, I mean, I have an identity as a professor when I'm teaching, and I have an identity now as a writer as I'm, when I'm talking to you. Uh, so, so clearly, one can have an identity as a uh, um, as an Arab and as a Muslim, and those two things should not be uh, at odds with each other, um, and they should not, nor should they exclude others from you know um, engaging with you on multiple levels. And I think I think that there's nothing in- inherently, and there never should be something inherently boundary driven about identities. There should be about how we can understand the complexity of our world by moving between these identities. That's the most important thing. And in fact, understanding the intersections between our various identities will also be deeply revealing of the power structure within the society. So it also offers us an opportunity to get to the to the heart of how power operates in our society if we look at it critically. So it's very important, I think, that we th- we think about these things explicitly and not and non boundary patrolling methods. In terms of how is it today, well, especially for Muslims, I mean, Muslim, I don't think was even really a a kind of racial category in the American imagination prior to 2001 very much. But now I think Muslim has become itself a kind of racial category. And I say that deliberately, even though race, because race itself is a fictional construct uh, on its own. And so it's not not difficult, I think, to imagine that that Islam can become its own kind of racial category. And I can offer you an example, you know, the example being the tragedy in Boston when there was the Boston Marathon bombing. When it turned out that the two brothers were responsible for it, the two brothers, their familial origin is in the Caucasus. These brothers are themselves Caucasian. Like they are literally Caucasian. They're literally Caucasian. And yet when people were talking about them, you know, on CNN and in the tabloids, what you heard, and there's evidence for this, the discourse shifted. They were like, no, they're not white. They're Muslim. In, in fact, they are white. They are, in fact, as white as you can get since they are actually Caucasian. And yet there was this idea that they're either this or they're that. And so if they had done this, then they must no longer be uh, white, but they must be Muslim instead. And so there's one very clear example of the kind of racialization of Islam that we see um, in the society today. But I think we should we should em- embrace identity, but at the same time, always interrogate it and investigate it, not for the comforts that identity gives us, but in fact, because it can reveal this, the power structures in our society much more deeply and profoundly. So I, I want to kind of end on the note of, you know, we talked a lot about complexity of identity and, and the Muslim and Arab complexity. And I think that you allude to in your book, or you talk about in your book, that there is a lot of diversity in the world and a lot of, you know, hybridity that exists today and that all identities are very complex. And I think maybe that we can look at the Muslim com- community as an example of the complexity that uh, and challenges the notions of nationalism that we're used to um, in a kind of a I want to I don't know if the right word is puritanical, but to like, for example, in the Palestine example, this idea of Zionism being, you know, a homeland for the Jews where people who are not Jewish live and therefore those people who are Palestinians, Muslims and Christians are not able to receive human rights and civil liberties that that choose achieve as if that land cannot be a home to more than one person. I see that even in a lot of places where I think we see these reactions like these people who are kind of following and, and excited about Donald Trump. They're excited to hear someone reject the other and, and reject complexity. So because of this reality and, and, and because we're not the only ones that you know, there's a lot of transnational migration happening in in the world, and I think these tradi- you know traditional structures are kind of breaking at the seams. 
I'm like throwing at you a very large concept, but you know, I want you to kind of talk about how do we challenge those structures and, and shape them um, when they're so bent on reducing us um, to a simpler, you know, less complex being when that's clearly what we are not. But kind of like, where do you see the future of like the states and how we conceptualize states and their citizenry? Yeah, you're right. It is a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you could just comment a little on it. <laughs> but it's an important one, too, because it's actually, you know, the kinds of reactionary politics that we see that you're describing internationally, I think, are, uh, uh, the, you could say that they're the, they're, the, they're the last gasp of what, what is a dying regime from, I don't know how long it'll take before it expires, but I think it's dying because the world is getting more mixed up and that's a good thing i mean mixed up in terms of like getting mixed you know i mean it's like um if you look at the united states by the the projection is that by 2043 the the country will be majority minority right that that uh, that white people will no longer be the majority of in the country but they will be less than 50% and so that the and that that could have profound impact on what an american identity is all about as well and you know if you if you travel in europe i've traveled qu- uh, quite extensively in europe and you can see that in europe too that uh, the, the next generations in europe are really going to be very fundamentally different from what they look like today and i think you can see that in various other parts of the world too international migration flows are really changing the nature of what we think of as uh, our solid identities and that's that's great that's fine things change it doesn't mean that things will will lose there are some things that will be lost and a lot of things that can be gained by that but it's not it's also way too much to think that we as this small uh, percentage in the world can bear that responsibility or bear all of the consequences of that on our shoulders. It's something that's definitely falling on us, but at the same time, you know, the the, the sort of old regime fighting back is falling us, on us right now on that. But it's not only on us, too. I mean, I think it's really important to think about the ways in which Donald Trump, for example, to use him as the most obvious example, has also villainized uh, Mexicans and, and Mexican-Americans now, too. And so I think that the way out is by understanding the common projection that we see happening around the world and making common cause with other people who, who will also understand the possibilities that are emerging by this, this mixed up world that we are now, we're on the cusp of really seeing. And it's really, I think it'll fundamentally change the nature of what nationalism, our sort of 19th century ideas of what nationalism is all about. And uh, maybe a 21st century idea of nationalism is one that's a lot a lot weaker in terms of, you know, a kind of ethnic, uh, ethno-nationalism. And maybe it's one that's fundamentally based on on a kind of more equitable level of, of sharing and, and, and working together for a future. I mean, I sure hope so. And that's the thing that I want to work for. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So thank you so much, Mustafa, for joining us. Mustafa Benyumi is a professor of English at Brooklyn College. He joined us from New York today to talk about his book, This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror. Thank you so much, Mustafa. Thank you. Thanks to the two of you. It was a great conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. You can email us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Arabiyat and Facebook.com slash Arabiyat podcast. Our theme song is by Muqatta. You can follow him on SoundCloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T.